You're listening to Dairy Voice, a podcast exclusively for the dairy industry. Welcome to Dairy Voice and to a conversation I'm really looking forward to. I'm your host, Joel Hastings. The word elite is one our guest today would never use to describe himself. But that's just one of the superlatives that can be applied to the dairyman who is our guest today. A dairyman who has a rolling herd average nearly 45,000 pounds of milk from a high-type registered Holstein herd whose genetics are in demand all over the world. I'd like to welcome Tom Castell of Evergreen View Farms in Waldo, Wisconsin. Tom, thanks for taking time to speak with us on Dairy Voice today. Good morning, Joel, uh, from sunny Wisconsin. Uh, I'd like to send my concerns for you people from California with your fire situation, and I hope everybody stays as safe as they can and you get some rain later today. Well, it is, uh, it is a tough situation here in California, but I'm glad things are good where you are. Let's start by having you just tell us uh, kind of a little bit about your farming operation, your family and your facilities, what you've been up to. Okay, my, my, I've been farming on my present farm here since 1975. Um, I bought this from a, a sheriff's sale back then. A, a young gentleman who was farming it uh, got very frustrated and uh, abandoned the farm and just went to California and worked for a big dairy out there. So when we took it over, it was in pretty bad shape. And so it's been a, a journey and a, a hard but pleasant journey to get things where they are. And um, we currently milk between uh, 90 and 100 cows, milk our cows in a, a conventional uh, tie stall barn with water beds, tunnel ventilation, and uh, the original buildings go back into the 1800s. The main barn was built in 1903 and of course been uh, remodeled since then and built on in every direction, as you can imagine. And we do use um, upright silos for feed storage. We like them because there's virtually zero waste and the feed quality can really be maintained high level and it gives us versatility with the feed. We never have to put any poor quality feed in structures that the milk cows will be um, eating out of. And you make it a point not to do that. I've heard you say. You make a very big point not to do that. It's never, I haven't had any hay rained on in, uh, uh, this is the 16th or 17th year, I think. We work very hard on getting our hay off and in a timely fashion and try and fit those windows. Um, but if anything would happen to get a little bit older, isn't quite the quality, that goes to feed heifers and cows. And I'm talking, it's still very good quality feed. We never put any poor quality feed in the silos. So we're always feeding everybody high quality feed. And you're getting lots of milk from that feed. Kind of what are your current production levels? Currently, we average for the last year 130 pounds of milk a day, which puts us at uh, 44,700 and a few pounds more than uh, 1,800 of butter fat. We average a 4% fat with that kind of milk and um, a little better than 1,400 pounds of protein per cow. That's fabulous. That's really terrific. We'll talk about genetics in a minute, but let's let's continue to talk about your your feeding program and your forage production activities. Okay. Uh, the one thing is we we do plant all hybrid alfalfa, and we cut it between four and five times a year. We started cutting fourth crop uh, yesterday, and that field uh, that 
farm will be harvested five times and maybe the rest will be two, but I don't, I don't necessarily need to feed as bad this year. So we might let some of the others go, the fifth crop um, to keep the stands in better shape, even though if they're fertilized properly, cutting them five times really doesn't hurt them very much. We made a change here a couple years ago that has really um, changed everything we do on the farm. We went to brown midrib corn about 15 years ago. And then two years ago, this will be a third year, we went to um, the flowery um, endosperm um, brown midrib corn and we went to chopping it like at 34 inches high. So we get an extremely um, high starch corn silage with a lot of energy. So that allows us to feed um, very low levels of uh, high moisture corn. We were down to 10 pounds uh, a day and averaging 150 pounds at some point. Uh, it gives the cows a, a, a more complete feed without all that energy from just shell corn. So it changes the whole dynamics of what we plant and how we plant it, how we harvest it. And that's been a real plus. And it was a real eye opener for our nutritionist, even. He said it was an aha moment for him that you could do that and cut your, your grain feeding down that low. And when you cut high with this corn silage, you also have a higher protein plant. You get better intakes because the cows don't uh, enjoy eating that bottom stalk. Uh, if you fed corn stalks, you know, which they did in the old days, um, even in my father's day, they'd throw corn stalks over the mangers or whatever. Well, they, they start at the top, they eat the leaves off, they eat the tops off, and the last thing that they almost refuse to eat is the bottom of the stalk. So I figure why feed it to them, you know? And so some people are surprised, even with the BMR, that um, we have decided to chop high like that. But we went back and chopped the bottom part of those stalks, analyzed it, and we were leaving very few nutrients on the field. A few tons per acre, but uh, that can be made up with uh, just a few more acres of harvesting. And uh, it just makes a much better feed. And it obviously gets the job done for you. You've been working with your nutritionist for many years, uh, Steve Woodward, I believe. Woodford, I'm sorry. Tell us a little bit about uh, how you two have worked together. Well, I think the, uh, one of the main things in, is that Steve is, a, is an excellent source for information. And he's willing to try new things, but we don't try new things just for the sake of trying new things. Feed virtually all homegrown feeds, including our own roasted beans. So what we're mainly buying is um, a small amount of protein supplement and vitamins and minerals, which is still costly. We're both willing to try new things, but we don't try new things just to say we did it, you know. Sure. There has to be a reason behind it. Sometimes we hear about uh, a high-performing uh, herd or cows where there is a challenge with DAs. Uh, I understand you've been remarkably free. Uh, how, how do you account for that? When our cows first calve, they're monitored pretty closely. And, and number one, I think there's a, a genetic component to DAs. Um, this goes back years ago. Uh, Dave Bachman from Piner's Farm was my neighbor, and he used a lot of Fon Matt. He said even the bulls he had that were Fon Matt blood had DAs, and he said every one of the cows did. We haven't had more than two DAs in the last 15 years. It's almost unheard of here. We give the, our, our fresh cows the first day or two, we give them long stemmy hay to um, 
that's very nutritious, but long cut for the first stage or two or even a week if they're not eating up to par. We have no transition diet other than that. And the cows move right into the main milking cow diet. And it's worked very well for us. And um, cows get the A's when, they're, when their stomachs get empty and things get to start moving around in there. And uncomfortable cows will also, um, who struggle to get up or something, they will um, be more prone to a DA. And uh, I think also cows that uh, subclinical milk fever, we give uh, either pills or IV every second calf plus cow on the farm when they calve. It's just a routine thing. And um, I've never lost a cow with milk fever. It's been years since we've had a a down cow with milk fever, um, many years. So those are just a few of the things. Uh, I'm watching these cows when uh, how they're eating and um, performing and chewing their cud. You have to chew your cud or you're in trouble. And uh, so it's just all those little things that add up to good results. And I'd much rather um, monitor things than have to treat things later. And you're milking three times a day. So you and your family and your staff are with the cows. In a small operation like ours, you know, of course, all the cows have a team. You have a personal relationship with them. But it still doesn't eliminate all problems. You know, recently we've whole cotton seed, and we've been having some problems getting uh, foreign objects in our, our cotton seed, wire, um, nails, pieces of, of fencing and stuff like that, that if the cows ingest them, it isn't very good for them. So um, I think you have to watch all those things. We, we, we like feeding roasted beans, um, our own roasted beans. We, we try and keep our, our ration quite simple. It's not an exotic ration, but we try and meet all the needs of the cows at the same time. You mentioned a genetic component uh, for herd health here a moment ago. Uh, let's, let's talk about your genetics and your breeding program. You've, you've been remarkably successful with production. In fact, you've had two world record cows, a damn daughter pair, which has never happened before. But you also have a very high type herd with uh, almost half the herd excellent. I, I think it's actually over half the herd is excellent right now. But of course, the, the younger the cows you're milking, the harder it is to have them excellent because you know, you gotta be at least second lactation. But uh, we try and breed for an all round bull and components is becoming more important all the time. I really think that a herd that's averaging 25,000 pounds of milk, even 30,000 pounds, of milk, um, you can, um, genetics plays maybe um, a, a third of the role in the production and management is two thirds. When you start getting over 40,000, genetics starts creeping up into the two thirds and management becomes the one third. You aren't gonna, uh, we recently had a cow make um, 3,500 pounds of butterfat as a four-year-old. That's a new national record and 63,000 pounds of milk you don't do that unless you have the genetics. We had a two-year-old just recently make 58,000 and uh, she calved back in and went excellent, excellent in the mammary. And so we don't want our cows to sacrifice type. The other cow is excellent 92. So, you know, we don't want to sacrifice type for production. And I certainly don't think you have to. I think the two complement each other very well. In your uh, stall barn, your tie stall barn, Describe maybe your 
desired cow or, and your typical cow, which might be pretty much one and the same, uh, how big is she and uh, where do you put the emphasis in terms of her confirmation? I don't like small cows, but I found out that huge cows, cows that weigh over 2,000 pounds, uh, they, they aren't your long-lived cows. You know, your 58, 59-inch cow, and we have 64, 65-inch cows here too. But your 58, 59-inch, 60-inch cow weighing uh, 16, 1,700 pounds is kind of an ideal type cow for us at maturity. We, of course, want them to have uh, good feet and legs, outstanding udders, low mastitis incidence. One thing that I've been lax on, I think, over the years is if a cow produces enough milk, I mean 60,000 plus, I've um, maybe allowed them to have a, to be treated once or twice during the year um, because of high cell counts. And maybe that's a, a mistake on my part that I should be being much more careful on our, our cell count because cell count is, high cell count bulls are for real. It's one of the most accurate things in the proof because it comes right off actual records. Uh, it's not like what we're hoping this to happen with the bull. It's what does happen. And so it's, it's a quite accurate thing. And uh, in the process of exporting some bulls to Bangladesh, you know, strange place to be exporting bulls to, but they wanted them all um, below three on somatic cell count. And I think ours averaged around 2.7, which is quite good. But I think the, the main formulas that are used today are quite accurate in, in weeding out the problem bulls, you know. I, I think on individual cows and things, maybe we lack some of the accuracy that I wish we had. But as a, as a, a herd program for classification and production, I think those things are quite accurate. If I may ask, what, what does your herd cell count run these days, your bulk tank count? Well, normally we want to keep it right at 100, but uh, this month we were 160, and um, that's way higher than what we want it to be. It can be uh, usually traced to just one or two cows. I'm hoping uh, that it's down in that. And, and this is our worst month every year. Sure. For some reason. It's been hot, and I, I'm hoping we're down in that 100 range. We seldom get below 100 because, again, I forgive some of these cows that are milking, you know, 200 pounds a day and uh, with high components if they have a, a 300,000 cell count, but that adds up in a tank too, you know. But, you know, we don't forgive that across the board, you know. It's something that you have to work on every day, I think, and, and we do, is to have, you know, we installed, and we had the first around-the-barn um, portable tit scrubber that they sold and uh, well, that's 10 years already. And that's been a big plus, I think, in training people how to milk properly and uh, getting things done in a uniform manner, you know? Makes everything much more uniform for milking procedures. Sure. I haven't ever talked to you about this before, but what is your protocol for treating a cow that does have a, a flare up, a hot quarter? For some reason, we do not get E. coli mastitis here. I haven't had one in, in several years, um, but we do get other forms of mastitis. And once in a while, there'll be strange ones, you know, that uh, we do, if a cow, we use the PCR test for identifying type of mastitis. 
But unfortunately, many times it comes back negative, and um, that can be quite frustrating at times. The PCR is supposed to, even if the cow is treated, it should allow you to um, identify the type of mastitis. And it doesn't always do that. We'll get you know, negatives on them, especially if um, the cow recently had the flare up, you know? We do treat them with commercially uh, available um, mastitis tubes and um, we use sterile application. Everything has to be written down and protocols followed because uh, to be honest, the last couple of years, I haven't done much of the milking anymore. I'm 72 now and I do want to preserve my knees till I'm old, you know? I don't milk as much anymore. I do a lot of the field work and uh, feeding and et cetera. But we do try and follow uh, veterinary recommendations and the providers of these um, medicines and treatments. We, we work with the Animart, now they call themselves Armor, and they, they have a veterinary on staff that we go over things with once or twice a year on how, what protocols to follow. You know, so, and we try and follow that pretty religiously. Every cow is tested before they go back into the tank for negative um, antibiotics. Our factory's been very good at that. Um, we send them in with the milk man. They tell us if it's negative or positive. So nobody goes in until um, they're negative. We use treated milk. We pasteurize it and using it for feeding our calves. Like I say, we don't get E. coli. So um, we just tested our pasteurizer last week and the bacteria counts were extremely low, way below recommendation. So I don't think um, it's really been an aid in raising healthy calves, you know. Let, let's talk more about your calves. You obviously get them off to a good start. I've read stories about your farm in which you've got some pretty interesting strategies in terms of getting your calves started. Well, again, we we, we do have protocols when every, every time a calf is born, uh, this is what we do, includes dipping the navel, um, give, giving them any sort of vaccinations and vitamins that we're going to give them. And then after they're giving these um, vaccinations, then we wait like 20 minutes before we feed them colostrum. But we always want the colostrum in the calf within the first half hour. And um, I think we're quite successful in doing that. I'm sure there are other people who are better calf raisers than we are but we've had a pretty good track record over the years. And uh, you always have to revisit that stuff all the time because somebody misinterpreted something or they, they, they lost track of what they were supposed to do or whatever. Um, like this morning, we had two calves born and uh, that it's, that's a priority then. Those calves are priorities. And we get those cows milked right away, get the calves fed right away. So we try and keep Again, you're much better off being proactive with the little calves than uh, um, having to treat them. And, but there are, there are always lapses. Calves are always a challenge, you know, and, uh, but we try and stay very proactive in our raising of the calves. And about 60 days on pasteurized milk, and then um, they get weaned, and uh, they're fed special pellets the first week after they get weaned uh, with cord in it that... Uh, get them off of a start without uh, coccidiosis. And uh, we want them to just transition quite seamlessly through the barn, you know. And we like them to calve, you know, from 111 to 22. And when we're doing um, 
embryo collection on heifers, sometimes they get a little bit older and uh, you can't, it's pretty hard to have everything. And a lot of people do, who are pushing the genetic envelope hard or doing IVF on them. But that whole process gets pretty expensive. And um, I think that um, our goal is to try and make money with every facet of the farm, not just with some of the facets, you know. Let, let's talk a little bit more about your genetics. You're genomically testing all or most of most of the heifers, I understand. We, um, we used to test every heifer, every bull. We no longer test um, only rare bulls because I know what level it is possible to get, you know, bulls and bull studs. Um, but then, then things will pop up like this um, Bangladesh order. I've sent uh, bulls to Russia. I've sent them to Mexico and um, sent them to a lot of foreign countries. And there's becoming more and more side traits or uh, different traits that these countries are looking for. On this particular order, they were looking for pole bulls. They were also looking for slick gene bulls. We're going to start pursuing uh, and red bulls. And we do have red animals. We do have poles. I haven't used the slick gene yet because there's such a compromise in production. But I think if a guy can contract these cows ahead of time, and then A2A2 is also becoming a major factor in breeding. So there's just new things all the time to think about, plan for. Smaller farms have less choices to be made, where if you're milking 1,000 or two or 3,000 cows, you have a very big base to work with. So you can work with some with this and some with that. And, but when you only have um, a couple hundred breeding age animals, you got to be fairly selective and, and very focused on your goals. Talk a little bit about how you are doing sire selection these days uh, beyond some of these special traits. What's, what's your, well, what's a bull have to do to get into your tank? High production is always necessary for me. I don't care if you have high, high components, you still have to have pounds of milk to a, a large degree. And uh, I don't set a strict guideline. Let's say you've got to be 890 pounds of milk or a thousand pounds of milk or 2.3 on type because so many times I read these articles and somebody says, well, they got to be three points on type. And then they list the bulls they're using. Well, none of them are meet the criteria. The, the range of these proofs change all the time. You know, we just lowered uh, the, the type of um, the bull proofs, uh, the points from, let's say if a bull was three, now he's two points on type and other composites were dropped way down. Foot and leg was dropped way down. Productive life was dropped way down. So there's always a floating scale. But I think, and this is shocks a lot of people. If you pick out four or five good bulls and randomly use them, you'll make as much progress as you will using mediocre bulls, specially mated. The, the top bulls have already had their They've already met all this criteria. So if you eliminate things that have extreme things you don't want, like low components or, or very, very poor daughter pregnancy rate, and you just select yourself five or six good bulls on a herd my size, then you can use these bulls almost randomly and have the same results as you will by worrying for hours on what to mate this cow to and that cow to. I've got five full sisters in the barn, and one of the sisters just that made that 3,500 pounds of butterfat, and all of her sisters are good, 
But you couldn't, if you went through the barn, you wouldn't be able to pick those five cows out. They don't look that close alike. So we aren't so smart as we think that we can perfectly mate these things. If you just use all good genetics and use good mothers and fathers, and it's important to have both sides of the pedigree, then you'll end up with good cows and cows you want to work with. But if you if you fall down on, you give up on traits like foot and leg just to get an extremely high milk bull, or if you give up on traits like daughter pregnancy rate because um, you liked the fat percentage on one, then you're going to have a much more hit and miss type of situation. Dave Fellner told me this many years ago, and I respect Dave Fellner a lot. He said, um, bull studs are successful if they're right one out of 10 times. If a farmer's right one out of 10 times in their breeding program, they're out of business. And so we have to be right 90% of the time plus. Uh, we don't want to color young cows. We don't have to get rid of them. We don't want undesirable young cows. So because we merchandise a lot of cows too, we want all these cows to come in and be successful on production number one and on udders number two, because people buy cows on their udders because that's the first thing they see. Then some people like them tall, some people like them short, you know, whatever else. But if they don't have a good udder and good tit placement, they don't like them. I don't care how much milk they're given. I think we can say a hearty amen to that, that statement. Yeah, I, I think so. As you look at your uh, business operation, your son is farming with you and his wife. How do you see things coming down the road? I just read about a uh, survey of Wisconsin dairy farmers in which uh, something like 83% of the uh, participants in the survey, and these are farms of all sizes across the state, uh, feel that their far they will be in business, their farm will be in business in five years. You've obviously increased production levels, you've made changes. How do you see evolving, even though you're not going to add a new freestyle barn and milk another 500 cows? Well, I, I think number one, but if you're a small size farmer, you have to small farm like you're a small size farmer and do the best job you can. You can't afford to go out and buy all new equipment every year and spend half a million dollars to produce half a million dollars worth of feed. You know, so we take care of our equipment. Um, we're as efficient as we can be in the field. We, we have a lot of doubles of equipment. We have uh, two hay binds. Uh, they're putting their new, but uh, um, we wanna be able to cut our hay fast. We have two choppers, pull type choppers because if, if something happens to the one, we can always keep going. But we do chop uh, with two when we're really busy. We have gone to uh, having our corn silage custom harvested because um, we normally get it harvested in one, one and a half days. If you plant it all the same day, it should all be harvested at almost the same day. So we try and hit the moistures exactly where we want them to be. We want them to be processed with uh, good efficient equipment but you can't afford to own all that equipment when you milk 100 cows so i think you we have to continually evaluate um how we're doing things on the farm does it pay to buy a new corn planter to plant so many acres my son went and looked at a, a no-till grain drill the other day and fifty-seven thousand dollars. well 
you got to plant an awful lot of acres to do that. So we rent it instead. The other thing, you know, this is about 30 years ago, a friend of mine from California was here and um, he had bought some cattle from me and he said, I'm going to give you a piece of advice now that you're going to ignore, but I'm going to give it to you anyhow. He said, take 30 or 40 acres of your land and set that up as a milking center and join with several neighbors to all milk your cows to that milking center. Put in a scale, you know, put in uh, and, and milk all your cows together, work together. And um, there are very few farmers 30 or 40 years ago who were interested in doing something like that. Today, there are more and more farmers who are looking at situations like that who are farming together. It gives them, number one, they all have a vested interest in it. And so you have a loyal, dedicated workforce that's interested in being successful. And I think we might be looking into some things like that um, in the future to farm parts of our operation or maybe the dairy end, maybe we're actually talking to some people about um, working with them with their robot barn, you know? When you go out and take, like me, I'm virtually <clears throat> debt free, but you go out and spend several million dollars on buildings and a new parlor or new robots or whatever, now you're 0% equity. And um, your whole outlook on how you can do things, now you become working for the bank instead of working for yourself. So we have to find ways to minimize our risk and minimize our investment per acre that we operate and uh, per cow that we milk because interest rates are not gonna stay at 3%. It's unrealistic in my feeling. I went through times when I was 18% while I was farming, so that can return. So we have to find ways to be able to get the most bang for our buck out of what we do. And the most interest have, you know, whatever you're interested in most, that's what you should be focusing on. Find people who have other interests and they can focus on that. And I, I think there's gonna be more collaborations like that in the future than there has been in the past. And there's, there's a lot of them going on now. I don't know what's gonna happen. Uh, I think a lot of farmers that think they're gonna be farming 10 years from now will not be, just because of unforeseen things in the future. But we've got down to a pretty hardy bunch that's left. Uh, the casual farmers have pretty well left the scene, you know? And uh, so the people who are left are pretty savvy, pretty business orientated. And um, I mean, I think obviously somebody's going to be producing milk 10, 20 years from now, but it's going to be a different situation than we have today. And I do think I am very cognitive of the fact that we do have to preserve both our land, our water. And uh, I recently was in China. They said 90% um, of the surface water in China was polluted and 70% of all groundwater was polluted. Said so they weren't wor worried about oil. They can buy oil, but they can't buy water. And that's a pretty true statement. And uh, once we ruin, ruin our aquifers under the ground and get them polluted with whatever nitrates, or, it, it's too late to think about it then. So we, we have to preserve our, our environment and uh, that has to be part of everybody's plan. And uh, 
I think it's a very, it's a big focus on our farm and yet we can still always do better. Well, Tom, I always appreciate talking to you. I always learn something and uh, I'm very appreciative that you've been able to have this conversation with us on, on Dairy Voice. Uh, our time is kind of winding up. So mm -hmm. I'll finish by thanking you. And, uh, well, Joel, I, I always appreciate you. You know, I've always considered you a great advocate for agriculture. I, I think we need those people out there who advocate for agriculture, just not the simple rah-rah um, farmers are great type thing, but farmers are necessary type thing. And modern agriculture is necessary. And I think it takes people like you to highlight this and bring this to the public and uh, so I really appreciate your efforts over the years and uh, you've got a long tradition of doing that your family has and uh, I think your family has contributed a lot over the years so thank you for that. Well thank you for those very kind words I really appreciate it I've always enjoyed talking with you and, and your wife Jen and uh, congratulate you for your success and, and wish you many more years uh, and, and Chris and Jennifer so then they have two little sons that um, if you, uh, you, can't, you can't set your life up with the idea that you're going to force your grandchildren into becoming farmers, but you have to make the, the situation available or it won't be. You know, if you don't preserve the, the, the farmland and the, and the farming enterprise and, and keep it so it is relevant in the future, it won't be available to them, you know. Well, I think your I think your uh, farming phrase that you that you use in your website and in some of your other activities, uh, Evergreen View Farms, where where dreams can come true, I, I think that's a that's a great attitude for everybody currently Thank working you. and for your grandkids. They go to school and they sing a little song. We are little farmer boys, you know, all day long, <laughs> and and you you don't want to be sucking them in to a a future that. Uh, cannot be enjoyable and fulfilling for him. So my little five-year-old, he's been on the front page of national magazines already, you know, with me and his dad. And um, I think he, they have a great deal of pride in being little farmers, you know. I'm sure they do growing up with, with you and your son. I'll thank you once again, Tom, for speaking with us. And for Dairy Voice, I'm your host, Joel Hastings at dairybusiness.com.